0: well it's always an exciting thing to begin a new series and we are beginning a i'll call it a small series at least by our measure (laughs) a small series uh, that is entitled uh, blueprints and i want to explain why we are doing this um, by referring to a little thing that happened in my life a few weeks ago Uh, a, a few weeks ago i had the wonderful privilege of marrying A a wonderful woman named Jennifer, four weeks ago in fact, now uh, officially married. And uh, I just would like to say that after four weeks, if any of you are struggling in your marriage and (laughs) need any advice, we pretty much have it figured out. So we'll be happy to pass that along to you. Just see me after the service and we'll straighten out whatever's going wrong there. But actually, we don't don't have it figured out because we, we spent two of those four weeks basically honeymooning and then got back and started to kind of put life together and to put the house, try to get the house in order and begin to have to make decisions about this, that, and the other. And you know what we're finding regularly as we do this? There are lots of things that the Terrell family... Look at differently, process differently, <laughs> do differently, then the DeWitt family <laughs> looks at things, processes things, does things. And so we're regularly having these moments where we're both kind of like, really? That's how you look at this? Now, we're almost through the list, so that we're almost done with doing that, but uh, <laughs> I'm, l- I'm learning a lot here, we both are, about what this is going to, uh, to take. Because what is clear now, even after just four weeks, is that to forge a new relationship, to forge a new household and a new home is going to mean change, and that this is a fresh opportunity for a new chapter in, in both of our lives. So here we are, as, 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 we, as we are here right now, we are in, in September of 2012, and we are one week after the grand opening of our, um, our new campus there in Cedar Lake, uh, which is the coming together of two congregations, uh, two, two groups of people that have ways of looking at things and ways of doing things. And it just seems to us that for, for us to have this new chapter and for us to enjoy this new relationship, that it's going to require change and a fresh way of looking at things and how important it is right at the beginning for us to, uh, to square up what we are doing and why we are doing it. And to make sure, if I can use a musical term, to make sure that all of us are singing off the same sheet of music. And so this series, Blueprints, is intended to, uh, to review, to refresh, to remind us of core biblical values and certain, uh, I would say, values unique to our, our to Bethel church, uh, so that we can all make sure that we understand why we're doing what we're doing and to enjoy this new, this new chapter and hopefully to build this uh, for the glory of God in the years to come. So, so uh, blueprints, it's a little bit of a play on the name of our church, frankly, and I think you'll get this. Maybe, maybe you don't know, but Bethel is a, it's actually a Hebrew word, it's a Hebrew name uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, when, when Jacob was on his travels and he laid down to sleep and God gave him, gave him the vision of the ladder to heaven and the angels going up and down this ladder, he awoke from that vision and he named that place Bethel. Beth is the Hebrew word for house, El is the Hebrew word for God. So Bethel literally means house of God. And so we're playing off of that metaphor, house or home, because one of the things that we all know if we're going to build a home or build a house is that you have to have quality blueprints that you are basing the building of this thing upon. Would we all agree that for a church to be blessed by God, that it has to be built by God? Are we on the same page with that? Okay. And would we all agree that God has, in His Word, laid out the blueprints for the kind of church, and I would add, the kind of Christians individually, that, uh, that He intends for us, His purposes are complete in His Word? I hope that we all agree with that, because what we want to do is we want to build, we want to draw—not draw—we want to look at the drawings of God in His Word, the blueprints that He's given us for the kind of home, the kind of house, the kind of Bethel that uh, that we think the Lord would have us uh, to be. So our approach in the series is is basically going to be to use the metaphor of a house, uh, to and each room in that house to. Uh, metaphorically to symbolize uh, an aspect of, of the church. And so to give you a little taste of this, next week we're going to be in the living room and to talk about what is worship and how all of life, all of living as a Christian in a biblical church is worship. And then we're going to go into the kitchen and in the kitchen is where we are fed and, and where we are nourished. And so we're going to talk about the role of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in uh, the church of God. And then we're going to go uh, out to the garden where we uh, work and labor and serve to supply the needs of the of the home. And then we're going to go into the closet where we pray. And then we're going to go into the neighborhood where we love and serve and evangelize. And so you kind of see how this is going to come together. It's brilliant, isn't it? (laughs) All right. Now, today we are going to begin where every construction project, every building project uh, begins. We are going to begin uh, with the foundation. We're going to begin with the foundation. And to ask the question, what is the foundation of a biblical church, and for this answer, we don't really have to look very far. We don't need to have little focus groups and have people pool their ideas or uh, have a whiteboard and say, "What do you think it is?" and to kind of see if maybe we can decide what we think the foundation of the church is, because God has laid out the foundation for us very clearly in His Word, First Corinthians three eleven. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What or who is the foundation of the church? Of the church? It is Christ. And so I hope that you're seeing now, we're just beginning to build this metaphor in our mind, if the church is a building, the foundation of that church, by God's design, is Christ. Christ. It is a person. It is a truth. In fact, the word the Bible uses for this truth, the summary word, is gospel. Say that word with me. Okay, gospel is a translation of a Greek word that literally means good news or to herald good news. And indeed, the gospel is good news. Now, why why start with this? I mean, some of you are like, oh, we're going to talk about what the church ought to be like, and I've got this pet ministry, and I hope we're going to get talking about that. Or why don't we start talking about this, that, or the other? Why start with the foundation? Here's why. Imagine with me if we were to actually be building a physical house, and we, we pooled our resources, and we, we're we going to build the most majestic house in all of northwest Indiana. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to have, this, we're going to have these special designs in it. We're going to do all the. So before we begin the construction, we gather everybody together. The construction manager and uh, the architect and uh, the foreman on the job and the tradesman. So the plumbers are there, the painters are there, uh, the bricklayers are there, the landscapers are there. We get everybody together and everyone's excited about this grand house that we're going to build. And the general manager gets up and says, all right, everybody, we all know this is going to be a very special house, but in, in some ways that you don't realize Particularly, first of all, that we've decided uh, that we are going to begin building this house. Uh, first, we're going to build the second story. Now, what, is the, what do the tradesmen do when the general manager announces that we're going, the house, they're going to start with the second story? They laugh, they scorn, they think you're joking, uh, they go back to the donut table uh, to say, what have I gotten myself into? Because everybody knows that you don't begin with the second story. If you're going to build a quality house, you've got to begin with a quality foundation. In fact, the quality of that foundation largely determines the, the stability of the house, doesn't it? In fact, I remember my neighborhood uh, that, I, that I lived in, there was, a, there was a house that these people, they bought the house, they moved into the house. Well, after Moving into the house, they discovered that the house wasn't actually sitting squarely on the foundation. There were foundation problems. Maybe some of you have had foundation problems in your home. It's a big deal, isn't it? And these people were so mad, and they sued the builder, and the builder, I don't counter sued or whatever, it's this big legal thing, and these people were so mad that they put signs out in front of their house, basically condemning this builder, and they put in every window in the house a giant lemon like a picture of a lemon, not an actual lemon, a picture of a lemon, basically saying, this guy sold us a bad house. And what was the problem? The foundation was bad. you got to have the right foundation. Now, ironically, for how important the foundation is, nobody really thinks about them until there's a problem, Right? Have you ever been on a tour of a house, or maybe you've been looking to buy a house, and so you're with your realtor, and you walk into a house, and you walk into the house, and and you're and, 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 oh, it's a beautiful house, and look at the kitchen, look at the cabinetry, and you go into the, the family room, oh, I love the fireplace, and this is wonderful, and I love the masterpiece, Path and you go out in the back of the house and you look out and see the back landscaping and all that and and people will walk through a house and they'll say this is a fantastic house without even paying one attention to the foundation right the foundation is what it is assumed isn't it it is assumed to be good because everything else seems to be so fantastic and wonderful and my observation is, in the church and in a local church, many people make the same mistake. They, they visit a church. They're looking for a church. They moved into the area or whatever it might be. They come in. They walk in. And most people evaluate the quality of a church based upon any number of secondary issues. The women's bathroom was very clean and had a nice fragrance in it, I noticed. The children's ministry seems very well organized. I like the style of worship. The people seemed nice. And they leave there and they think, you know what? This is, a, this is a very, very good church. In fact, my observation is that many people are willing to join a church without ever reading the doctrinal statement. Now, how is that? Because the foundation of the church is the teaching and the doctrine of the church, and the foundation of the doctrine and the teaching of a biblical church is Christ. And you can do church with all these other things, and the foundation, like the house in my neighborhood, can be very uh, uh, bad. And that is why we begin with the foundation. We want everybody in this church to understand that we are not building a house upside down here. We are not just saying, oh, Jesus, yes, he's the foundation of the church, but our passion and the things that we really care about are the secondary issues. We care about the secondary issues, but not as much as the foundation. We want the foundation not to be assumed, and that for the people of our church to to love and to treasure and to see the value and the priority that Christ is solidly at the bottom and holding up all that we believe and all that we do, and not just to say it. Churches will say it, their doctrinal statements will say it. Oh, yes, Jesus is the foundation of this church. But then we're really about all these other things. We want to be a church in this community that is really all about Christ. Okay? That's what we want. Amen. So, our starting point. Is the foundation of the church Jesus and the gospel about Him? Today, what I want to do in terms of our time in God's Word is, uh, rather than studying one passage, I want to read. Uh, I want to read six passages. Each of these, in my estimation, would be the clearest gospel, succinct gospel statements in the New Testament. And I want you to listen as I read these and pick up what are the recurring themes that God, New Testament gospel statements always include, okay? So, and maybe your list would be slightly different. I would say probably at least half of these we all would have on our list of the, of the most clear gospel statements. But here we begin. Matthew 121, the angel says to Mary, She will bear a son. I'm sorry, to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 1 Timothy 1, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then most famously, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If we take these six gospel statements and if we synthesize them, And to ask ourselves, what is the essence of the gospel? I want you to notice the recurring themes. First of all, the gospel tells us of a person, and his name is Jesus. Here are the words in those passages that highlight him. Jesus, Christ, this man, him, only son, okay, okay. We see in the foundation that the foundation of the church is not, it is truth, but it's not simply a truth. This truth is a person, and the person that is described uh, is done so in such marvelous terms. First of all, he is called a man. He was a man. Jesus was fully human describing now his incarnation that god became a man we celebrate this at christmas the the marvel and the glory that the greatness and the glory of god could be encapsulated incarnated into a human being and he lived amongst us he is also called only son john 3:16 this refers to the fact that this person who is the foundation of the church was also god And not just a God, but fully God. Fully the most high God. Having within him the fullness of God. The fullness of deity. He was fully man. He was fully God. And this person, it says, came to this world. Now all of these gospel statements, they consistently say the same thing. That the gospel, the good news, centers on a person... His name is Jesus, and Jesus, we find, is the gospel. Let me say that again. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He is the focus. He is the center. He is the Savior, a real historical person who really lived in time and space, who really did die on a Roman cross He was real. He lived. He is not a legend. He is not a myth. He is not somebody that a literary writer imagined in their mind. This marvelous person. Wouldn't it be fantastic if God became man and came and died amongst us? It really happened. He was real. And he really lived. And the writers of Scripture that describe him and tell us about him, all of them were either eyewitnesses, or were the companion of eyewitnesses and relate to us what the eyewitness told them about Jesus. And he is described by the people that saw him and lived with him in the most amazing and wonderful terms. They were constantly bewildered by the nature of his life and the qualities that they emphasize. He was the son of God. He was born of a virgin. He was morally perfect. He was a miracle worker. He was a teacher. He was a healer. He lived a life that even to this day, an honest seeker of truth will find wonderful. In fact, one of the best things that you can do if there's somebody that is interested in Christianity or wondering about what this is all about, don't don't just like, well, here's what you got to do. Tell them just to read the gospel. Read the Gospel of John. Do you know how many people that have been somewhat interested in finding a spiritual answer to life that simply read the Gospel of John at the end of it all said, There's no never been anybody like Jesus and have put their faith and trust in him. That's the character of his life. That's the nature of the wonder and the glory of his life. It is Jesus. The Gospel is about him, his person. It is also about what he did. Here are the words to describe what he did from those gospel statements. Came into this world, died for our sins, raised on the third day, made him to be sin, suffered. The gospel is a person, it is also a story. It is is not simply that he existed, that there once was a God-man who existed. It is what this God-man did on our behalf, saving us coming into this world, dying for our sins, raised to life on the third day. These are all summary statements of what the gospel writers get into much more detail about regarding what happened to him and what he did. The Bible tells us that his life was extraordinary by any measure. His teaching drew thousands of people to hillsides just to hear what he had to say. His miracles scared those that were closest to him, the power and the might to calm the sea, to raise the dead man. Even his believer, even his disciples were were scared when they saw the display of his power. They had never seen anything like it. And the thing about his life was that the priorities of it were so antithetical to the values of the day. The values of the day, the religious people, they wanted to be admired. They were self-righteous. They wanted to be with other important religious people. But what was Jesus like? Who was he a friend of? Oh, my friends, are you with me here this morning? Who was he a friend of? And this is a really great truth if you're a sinner. Sinners, right? Do you remember the stories? He would go to the, to the, to the uh, tax collector's house and the Pharisees would be there and they'd be like, oh, if only they knew, if, I can't believe a, a rabbi would be hanging out with people like this. And Jesus said, I haven't come for the healthy, but for the sick. And you go to a prostitute or you go to a tax collector who's been cheating people for years and he knows it and everybody knows it. And the tax collector and the prostitute, they say, you know what, we're sinners. And that's exactly who Jesus came for. He came for sinners. Those were the people that he connected with, the disenfranchised, the people on the fringes. Basically this, the people who would freely acknowledge that they are not righteous and that they need a Savior. Those are the people that have always been drawn to Christ. The self-righteous, the religious, the look-at-me types, they have no time for a savior like Christ. You might ask yourself what you are here today. What are you? Well, if you know the story, this life that he lived, healing people, feeding people, teaching people. This life of love that even to this day is admired around the world. In that day, amongst the religious elite, it was not admired. In fact, there were, the religious people did not like him. They hated him. And through political pressure, which would even make the Chicago political machine admire it, uh, through political pressure, the Pharisees manipulated the governor of the day, Pilate, into not simply condemning Jesus as a criminal, but also condemning him to die in the most gruesome death that the Romans had come up with, a death by crucifixion. And you can read that story, and maybe in in a kind of superficial way, it may look like Jesus was kind of a pawn of a political power struggle or something like that, but the Bible says this was God's plan from the beginning, that Jesus would come and he would die at the hands of sinful men. And the Bible tells us that as Jesus died on the cross, that that death was not a death for his sins. It couldn't be. Why? Because he had never sinned. And because he had never sinned, it meant that he could die in the place of sinners. If he had sinned, he would be dying for his own sin. But by living a morally perfect life, he now was qualified to die for somebody else's sins. And the Bible says he died for our sins. He died in our place. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that verse captures the essence of the gospel and the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which basically says this, that as Jesus died on the cross, God the Father treated him as if he was personally responsible for the sins of the world. And by doing that now, by basically treating Jesus as if he was us, it frees God in his holiness and justice to treat us as if we are Jesus. Did you follow that? By him dying for us, God treats Jesus as if we are, as if he was us. It's bad grammar, but you get it. And now is free to treat us as if we are Jesus. Now, in that, I don't mean actually Jesus, rather the righteousness of Jesus, that morally pure life where every thought and intent of his entire life, every motive behind what he did was absolutely perfectly fulfilling the will of God. I mean, it's staggering to think about it, isn't it? Not only did he never do what he should not do, he always did what he ought to do. And the motive behind it was always the glory of God. Now, for sinners like us, we can't even imagine of that. We sin every day. But Jesus, every moment of his life, perfect, morally upright. And so, friends, listen. Because Jesus died in our place, the Father treats us as if we lived The life of Jesus. This is known as imputation because in substitutionary atonement, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God against our sin and imputes to us, to our moral account, the very righteousness of Christ so that he now is free to look at us and to declare us righteous. How righteous? As righteous as Jesus is. That's something to clap about, my friends, indeed. We are as holy in the eyes of God as Jesus is. That is the declaration of justification, that we are declared eternally righteous in the eyes of God. Now, are we righteous? Actually, no, we are not. We are sinners. And those that are under the grace of God, we are no better than those that are not under the grace of God. We are simply under the grace of God, is what that means. And we stand now before God, not just now by faith, but now, but but forever. We stand before God and he does not hold our sins against us. He now sees us as holy as Christ and bestows upon us the promises, the riches. We are co-heirs with Christ and we are that forever. Why did God do this? Love is why he did it. His glory is why he did it. The magnification of his son is why he did it. It is his grace to us entirely. We have done nothing to earn it. We have been recipients of his goodness and his love. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And that is what the foundation of the church must be. You with me? Amen. Now, this story, this glory of this gospel says this, that he, that he died, that he was buried. And as 1 Corinthians 15 said that he rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And in doing these things, he, he, he accomplishes what we so desperately needed. He died on the cross to break sin's curse against us, and he was resurrected from the dead to break death's grip upon us. Who are two enemies? Sin and death. The cross defeats sin, and the resurrection overcomes death. And so the gospel here centers on who Christ is, what he did as Savior and Lord. The third thing that the gospel entails are the glorious effects for those who believe. Again, we go back to these six statements. Here are the recurring themes, save his people, save sinners, freed from everything, that we might become the righteousness, might bring us to God, have eternal life. The Bible says that there is one requirement for a sinner to receive the benefits of what Christ did on the cross for us, and that one requirement is the word faith. Or the verb, believe. Two sides of the same coin. Faith or believe. It answers the question that maybe you might have in your mind. How do the redemptive works of Christ, the guy that died on the cross for the sins of the world 2,000 years ago, how are all of these amazing benefits brought to my, how are they a reality for me? How are these promises true for me? And God has so designed this and so set this up whereby the one thing that, the the, the means by which all of these benefits come to my account is that I must believe. The Bible talks about uh, that I must repent of my sins, and in that I believe that Jesus did die on the cross for my sins. And the Bible says that when a sinner believes in Christ, that God applies the redemptive benefits of what Christ has done to my moral account so that now I am seen as righteous as Jesus, that my sins are forgiven, and I am given the wonderful gift of eternal life. Faith, belief. You may remember the story at Acts 16, when uh, Paul and Silas are in the, the prison, and uh, they, they had been arrested for Uh, preaching the gospel, and they had been beaten, and they were put into this prison. And the text says that it was around midnight, and Paul and Silas were in prison, and they were singing hymns. Now, you might ask yourself, if you've been beaten, and whipped, and all the rest, and thrown into this prison, and it's after midnight, past most of our bedtimes, What would maybe be low on the list of things that you might be doing? I would think that maybe singing hymns would be low on the list, wouldn't it? But here we see now Paul and Silas' joy in Christ and joy in ministry. They're singing hymns, and the prisoners are listening. Well, an earthquake hits. An earthquake hits, and the doors of the prison swing open. And the Roman jailer uh, who was in charge of these prisoners assumed that everybody had run for the hills. And he knew what that meant. In the, Roman, in the Roman system, if you let a prisoner go, your life was required of you. And he draws the sword to take, care, to take his own life, and Paul cries out, don't do it, we're all here. And that jailer who had been hearing the hymns and maybe had heard the preaching comes now to Paul and Silas and asks the question that humanity has asked for so many centuries, what must I do to be saved? And notice what they said. This is the apostolic witness believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The gospel of this church is that we stand in the history of the apostles for 2,000 years who have simply said, believe, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. It is the story of God's rescue of sinners. And it can be the story of any sinner who personally places their faith and trust in him. I'm calling that the actual gospel, okay? That is the actual gospel. I want to draw a contrast now with what I'm calling almost gospels. Almost gospels. And by almost gospels, what I mean is gospels that almost save you but they don't. They sound almost right, but they're not. Almost gospels. Here's my first. I'm calling it the religious gospel, okay? The religious gospel. This is what religion says. Religion says that if I am going to make my way to God, if I am going to find actualization, if my sense of spirituality is gonna be fully realized, whatever term you wanna use, and all religions have terms for that, Religion says that I must do something. I have to do something. I have to merit favor in some way in order for this salvation to be mine, which if you think about it, what does religion, who, who, in religion, who's in charge of salvation, really? I am, because I'm the one who's doing it, right? And so you see this when you talk with people because religious people basically, in my, in my observation would be, they basically do this. They look in the mirror and they think to themselves, I must be good with God because, and there can be a long list of things, I'm a nice person. I have nice standing in society. I've raised nice moral kids. I am a doer of good things. I am better than most people that I know. I've avoided major sins. I've been a positive part of society. And they look in the mirror and they think to themselves, I am religious. I believe in God. I must be on the path to heaven. These people are believing in an almost gospel. And you hear this from them when you get talking about faith or religion or whatever with them, and you say something like, well, how do you know that you're going to heaven? And they'll say something like this, I'm Catholic. I'm Protestant. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Hindu. I'm Muslim. Pick your religion. And what comes out is not a personal faith, but my connection to a broader organization that I'm really resting and trusting my hope in, the fact that I am blank, whatever that religion may be. And I hope that you see how this religious gospel is not the actual gospel. It sounds nice, doesn't it? When you talk to people like, oh, I go to church and, and uh, I'm, I'm involved in these organizations and we've done these really nice things and so I, I have to believe that I'm good with God. I'm going to heaven because I've done these various things. Friends, listen. The, that religious gospel, do you see how it is actually, it sounds nice, but it's actually the antithesis of the actual gospel? Because what is the actual gospel? Not that I am a good person. Rather, I am a sinner. Not that I can do something that merits favor with God. I can't do something that merits favor with God. Rather, It is what Christ has done for me. It is not that I do something, it is what Christ has done. And that difference there is massive. And I'm here to tell you, it is the difference for millions of people between an eternity in heaven and in hell. And that's why as we talk about these, it's so, here we are in church, you know, and you're sitting there and I'm up here talking and it can just sort of seem like we're doing this, even this religious thing right now. And to not realize that right now in this community and in this world and maybe in this room, there are people who are going to hell in eternal judgment from God because they are missing this point. Their hope is not in Christ. It is in themselves. And the disciples did not say, believe in yourself and you will be saved. It was believe in Christ. And that is why it is so important that this church have the gospel solidly, because if we go into this community and sort of give a moralism to the community, we are simply entrenching them on the path to hell. What this community needs is what we ourselves need, and that is Christ. Not what we do, but what he has done for us. That is the gospel. Do not end up being almost saved. Almost saved is totally lost. And eternity is a long time. The second gospel, the second almost gospel, is the experience gospel. And this one is subtle because it also sounds almost right. These are people who believe in some way in an experience that they have had in their life a very deep and meaningful spiritual experience that they've had in their life. When you talk to them about faith or whatever, and you may say something like, uh, you know, what do you believe? And immediately, they don't talk about what they believe in, they talk about what has happened to them. Well, when I was a child, or when I was in sixth grade, I went to this camp, and the speaker said, there's pine cones all over here. And why don't you get that pine cone, and why don't you make a decision of some kind for Jesus and throw the pine cone in the fire? I threw the pine cone in the fire. Hmm, and just sort of like top that, you know, kind of thing. Or they say something like, I was at something, and I went down the aisle. I went down that aisle. I got pictures of me at the front of that aisle. I have witnesses that could line up that I went down the aisle or some other thing this crazy thing that happened once and I it made me think god was real an experience of some kind i want you to see friends the the apostle doesn't say that we should walk an aisle pray certain words he says believe believe on the lord jesus and the actual gospel is not an experience-based thing. It is a faith-based reality in my life. And that faith is an ongoing faith. So if i got to reach back 30 years for a moment in my life where something was real to me spiritually, but there is no vitality in my life now, I think that that is an almost gospel. Experiences of some kind. And again, this is subtle because it sounds almost right, doesn't it? Oh, well, you. Okay, sounds evangelical. Was that a Christian camp that you threw the pine cone in? (laughs) Oh, then you must be all right, you know. It's what we believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus. I would say it this way to you. It is a subtle difference, but it is the difference between heaven and hell. Trust in Christ fully, and don't let your salvation be based upon anything that you have done, even in the smallest degree. As the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Bethel Church, I hope this can be true for you. When somebody says to you, how do you know that you're going to heaven? It is not something that happened in your life. It's not some moment in the past. It is because of what Christ has done for me, dying on the cross for my sins. That is it. That is our hope. That is the foundation. It's the actual gospel. The third one, quickly, is what I call the effects gospel. And by this, what I'm getting at is that there is always this tendency, I think, to confuse sanctification for justification. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean the gospel is transformational, absolutely transformational. When the Spirit comes into our life, we are regenerated, we are made alive. The fruit of that is change. Truly, there is change. But the change is not the gospel. The effect of the gospel is not the gospel. And we can't confuse these true, or say it this way, we can't confuse the, the fruit for the root. And think about all the churches there are, even within our own community, and what are they all about? There are, many of them are about the fruit. And so churches can get really into something, like, we are all, we are, we're about being a family. We fellowship. We fellowship. We prioritize our small groups, and we get together, and we love one another. You know what? That is great, isn't it? But it's not the gospel. We are about justice in the community, and we're involved in all kinds of things in the community to bring justice and righteousness into this world, and and all about that, and it feels right, and it feels good, and you know what? That is important, vitally important to a Christian church, but it is not the gospel, that is not the gospel. It is an effect. It is the fruit. It is not the root. And I say here to this room, and I say to the radio, and I say through the video, that the, the foundation of this church is Christ. And the gospel is faith in him with wonderful transformational fruits that we celebrate and that we labor for, but we do not confuse with what it actually is. It is Christ. The actual gospel is Jesus. The actual gospel is God. The actual gospel is a cross and an empty tomb. The actual gospel is faith as the means by which Jesus' redemptive work is applied to me. It has fruits and effects, but they are not a saving foundation. They are beautiful rooms in the house. You get what I'm saying? Now, with that, historical gospel statements. Here is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Nicene Creed, 325 A.D. he suffered and was buried and on the third day rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I see in creed. Here is our own church doctrine statement on the person and work of Christ. As the promised Messiah, Jesus was sent by the Father to deliver people from their sins. He became fully human at the incarnation without ceasing to be fully God. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, and lived a perfect life free from sin and guilt. Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross, and his death provided the all-sufficient atonement for sin. Christ became our representative before God, voluntarily substituting himself in our place and bearing our sin and guilt. His sacrifice made provision for the forgiveness of sins, satisfied God's wrath towards believing sinners, and established a new covenant between God and man. Because of Christ's redeeming work, it is now possible for people to experience genuine reconciliation with God and eternal life with Him. How did we do with that one? Pretty good? And so can I say, are we on the same page? Are we building this house with with a biblical blueprint? Are we building this church solidly on the foundation of the person and the work of Christ? And can I further ask personally for you? Because the church, you know, the church is not the structure, and in a sense, it's not the organization. The church is the people of the church. And this is where this now comes down personally to every single one of us. The question, not whether or not the church has this right, but do you have it right? And as you sit here today, are the redemptive works of Christ on your behalf applied in the eyes of God to your moral account so that as you sit here right now, you are not Sitting here as a sinner in the eyes of God, but He is seeing you through the very righteousness of Christ. Have you personally put your faith and your trust in Him? And if not, why not? And if why not, why not today? To place your trust in Him, He's done this because He loves us and He wants to save and rescue sinners from their sins. And in the church, we will have many things that we can maybe disagree this on that on or have some little thing that we're kind of like, oh, we've sat down for coffee. You might have some little pet issue that we'd go back and forth on, and maybe we would end up agreeing to disagree. But on the foundation, we cannot disagree, and we cannot compromise, and we cannot get off center. It, he must be forever the foundation of the church. And for that to be true, it means that we all bear a responsibility to pray, and to serve, and to study, and to learn, and to grow, and to make sure that this church is squarely built on the foundation of Christ. That is what we want. We want to be a church that makes much of him. Amen? Amen. Amen. (laughs) To him be the glory. To him be the glory. Would you stand with me, please, for a word of prayer?